molded out of red clay and baked in the West Texas sun to perfection is The Other Side of Texas with Jay Leeson. Adios, goodbye amigos, I am leaving. Welcome back in. This segment is brought to you by Lubbock File Room, providing safe and secure document storage and shredding services to Lubbock and the surrounding areas since 1992 for a free and hassle-free estimate, call 806-744-7666 at 744-7666 today. You know, little sister, whenever I was in English classes at mm-hmm. Texas Tech University, they said, English look, classes are hard at Tech. Yeah, the literature, they said, look, references and alliteration in American literature, 85% comes from the Bible, 5% from Shakespeare, and 10% from everywhere else. And if I could download into my brain three works, it'd be the Bible, Hamlet, and Empire of the Summer Moon. All that to say, I'm glad to have S.C. Gwynn join the program, author of Empire of the Summer Moon. How are you? Well, we got a lot to get into. So you write, it's pretty eclectic. You've just done a book on the evolution of college football how mummy and mike leach i'm giving my heart a tap right here with mike leach the perfect pass you've written rebel yell which is a book about stonewall jackson and his service a great and tragic american hero but what we brought you on to talk about on yano estacado radio is empire of the summer moon about Quanta parker and the rise and fall of the comanches the most powerful indian tribe in american history sam tell us how what inspired you to take up this work? I mean, you almost won a Pulitzer with this work. I mean, it's fantastic. There's a reason I want to download it. But what got you interested in the subject in the first place? Well, at first, I mean, I, I think that the first thing that caught my eye was I'm a, I'm a Connecticut Yankee, so I come down here, and I just, I, I've now been here 24 years, so I, I think I qualify as a semi-Texan now. My daughter's 100% Texan, but, you know, when I came here, one of the things that hit me over the head was how close Texas was to its frontier. Not only, not only in time, you know, it was 1875 when Quanah brought in, you know, the last of the starving Comanches in around Lubbock, right? Mm-hmm. That was the end of the, the frontier. There was a lot of jostling on and off the res, you know, into the 20th century. I, I met people whose great-grandparents had been killed in Austin by Comanches. I met, uh, like, some guy whose grandfather had ridden with Quanah. I mean, this was really close in Texas, and is really close. The frontier is right there in Texas. It's right there in history. I, I, I tell everybody, I think Texans live on frontier, mental frontier anyway. I think they do, in the most positive sense of the word. Yeah. But, so I saw this stuff, and I'm a guy from Connecticut. And I go, wow, that's really cool. And, all, and the tribe featured in so many of the stories uh, about Texas were, were Comanches, which I had never really heard of except in John Wayne movies. I mean, you know, they were, when people... When they yeah, wanted the to change your code, they'd go, they'd go, the, the, the sergeant, that's a Comanche arrow. That would mean, like, super danger, right? But I didn't know anything past that. But the, what interested me was not only all that, but that all the stories of Comanches, you know, I thought of Native Americans in terms of dance and rich culture and, you know, rituals and religion and dance and art and music and all the rich cultural things we associate with Native Americans. All these stories were about war and death and mutilation and blood. Uh... And the, and the reason they were is because Texans fought a 40-year war against Comanches. And so I just was fascinated, and, and I just thought, 
and there was that, and then the final thing I'll say is that, and then the whole idea that the end of the frontier, the very last thing that went down was right where you're sitting. That's the end of the frontier. And, you know, we push westward across America, right? We got to California, but California was settled first, you know? The last place to go was right where you're sitting there, and that idea of, you know, the end of limitlessness, the end of the frontier, it happened on the, you know, palisaded plains. So, you know... Anyway. <laughs> now, let me quote you for just a moment before I ask my next question. Uh, that came from Coronado. Uh, Palisaded Plains of West Texas, a country populated exclusively by the most hostile Indians on the continent where few U.S. soldiers had ever gone before. The Llano was a place of extreme desolation, a vast, trackless, and featureless ocean of grass where white men became lost and disoriented and died of thirst, a place where the Imperial Spanish had once marched confidently forth to hunt Comanches, only to find that they themselves were the hunted, the ones to be slaughtered. So Sam Gwynn, let me ask you first about Comanches and then let's move over to the Union solution to the Comanches. Uh, tell listeners who are unfamiliar with this story, how did the Comanches became, become what they were? And in your own words, the most hostile Indians on the continent. So they were, they were, they were, well, they were hostile on many different levels, but I mean, they were, they were, uh, the other Plains Indians were hostile, but there was a particular quality to, let's say, the Plains Indians that were out where, where you were, those the, the particular bands uh, that inhabited that area. So here's what happened, in, in a nutshell. You have Comanches, uh, historically, uh, this is uh, before any horses arrived in North America. There are no horses, so imagine no horses. It's just Native Americans living here and no horses. And Comanches are up in the Wind River Mountains somewhere, a tribe that you know does not have the richest hunting grounds. Uh, Spanish come north, right, from Mexico. And think of they're coming to Santa Fe along the Rio Grande, right? They bring a lot of horses with them, and at some point the horses get out. Spanish understand that they shouldn't let them out, but they do get out. And the technology gets out, too. So horses plus technology, and the, essentially it's more complicated than this, but the tribe that, become, that comes into possession of the full horse technology, the guys who are better at everything to do with horses, riding, hunting, fighting, breaking, breeding, stealing, everything are Comanches. So what they do, now now we're up in, we're not sure exactly where they are, but we, let's say we're starting in the Wind River Mountains. What happens is, is when the Comanches become mounted, it tilts the balance of power in the plains. And what they do is what you would expect them to do, the great new power in the, in the center of the American continent, is they challenge for the single richest food source on the plains, which, uh, well, Buffalo were the, was the food source, and the, the richest source was in the southern plains. There were Buffalo up north, but most of them were down in, let's say, the Texas panhandle, uh, West Texas, right? So, so that's what happens. So you have in the 17th century this incredible sort of movement south where suddenly Comanches are showing up. They're stopping the Spanish in their movement north. They're stopping the French in their movement west. They're nearly eradicating Apaches from the from the face of the earth. I mean, suddenly this enormous power balance shifts. It's very dramatic in history, and it's very cool and very interesting, and it all has to do with their ability with a horse. But, Sam, why so brutal? That's the part I don't get. And we can talk about the other side of it in a minute with McKenzie. 
but the stuff that you delineate in the book, like I'm thinking about Salt Creek Massacre, and I'm thinking about dragging a baby through a cactus patch. Like, where did that stuff come from? All that stuff, yeah. Well, it's interesting that the Comanches were not alone in their brutality. So if if we dial back to pre-white men, right, you have, what you have is you have Native American tribes, and let's just say these are Plains Indians we're talking about now, although the Eastern... Indians, you know, Iroquois, and, uh, you know, the uh, were very, very brutal also. But if you go back there, you have these Native American tribes living in pretty much harmony and stasis. They're, they're on, the, on the plains now. The buffalo is a way of life, right? They're raiding is a way of life. Um, we both, both raid to steal horses and raid for revenge for, for people killed. And they're in their... There are not enough of them to exhaust the enormous food supply. They get everything from the buffalo, right? All the all food, lodging, you know, weapons, clothing, everything comes from the buffalo. And there's no way they can ever exhaust that resource. So they've got this great kind of world, and one of the things that's in that world is a, a policy, I guess. You guess you'd call it a backwards golden rule, which is just every, if, you, if, the, if you get captured, you're in trouble. You're going to be tortured. <laughs> Uh, you know, and, and this is true if you're if you're the Wichitas or the Navajos or the Comanches or the Arapahos or the Cheyennes. If you are if you are a, uh, a, a child, let's say a baby is cat, baby is killed automatically. You can't do anything with the baby. Children, uh, you know, maybe eight, nine, ten, eleven, sometimes taken into uh, the tribe. Uh, and um, for, for the moment, let's just forget about white men. These are just Indians and uh, raiding raiding other Indians. And you have, you know, if you're a, you know, a 15 year old uh, woman, you're probably going to be made a slave. If you're a, if you're a male, you're going to be tortured quick to death quickly if they don't have a lot of time, and slowly if they do have a lot of time. And this is the way it is, and everybody's happy with this. It, it takes the, you know, it takes the, the culture of, you know, of Anglo, the Anglo Europeans the culture of the Renaissance and the Judeo-Christian tradition and the morality of that, to suddenly run into this and go, oh my God, we're horrified that they're going to kill a baby. We're horrified that they're going to kill you know, uh, a young woman or, or, torture, or torture captives. So I don't know if I'm making sense, but if you can't, you know, it, 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 until the white men get here to be shocked by it, nobody's shocked. Okay, now we're shocked. We come, oh, I can't believe what they, you know, the, the people on the frontier couldn't believe what they did to captives. It was just brutal beyond any imagination. These are all Plains Indians now. Um, and really all, most, most Native American tribes had traditions like this. It's, it's just a strange part of the culture. Um, you, you, can ju- you can explain it and justify it. I go to some lengths to try to do that. But it's just part of the deal. And so... Out on the frontier, you have Indians behaving that way, and you have white men. You mentioned Sand Creek, one of the greatest white massacres of Indians. But, there, you know, Custer and the Washita, there were lots and lots of really brutal and lots and lots of unrecorded sort of militia murders of Indians and children and women and everything else. And the Texas Rangers were no bargain, let me tell you. They learned about no quarter from the Indians. So the, the frontier was really brutal. It was brutal both sides and both ways, and uh, uh, and if you see them, the, the, one of my favorite movies is The Searchers, mm-hmm. and uh, it's one of the great things about it to me is John Wayne, it, ch- it changed my mind about John Wayne, 
he's, he's so great in the movie. He just plays this bitter, just angry, mean, frontier you know, settler. And he captures so well the feeling that white people had for Indians. They just hated them. And, and they all had stories, you know, somebody's wife had gotten eviscerated or raped or somebody had been killed. And, of course, the Indians had their own stories. Indians hated Texans just as bitterly as, you know, the, the Texans hated Comanches. Yeah, one. So tonight, Sam Gwynn joining us here. A little extended interview. Appreciate you taking time to do this, Sam Gwynn. But no to, problem. Tonight, my daughter goes to McKenzie Junior High to play in the playoffs of her little basketball league. And every time we walk in there, I point at that mural and I say, "Now that's Randall McKenzie." It, to so many people, like most monuments, like most buildings, the name just erodes over time. It just becomes part of the culture. Talk to us about why Randall McKenzie was just the right man at the right moment. And I'd also like to ask, who was more tragic in the end, Stonewall or McKenzie? Well, that's an interesting question because yeah, Mackenzie goes crazy. Um, I mean, Mackenzie loses his mind. So, in some, I don't know. That's a really good question. I, I would say Jackson, but 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 it's it's anyway. So, Mackenzie, there's this great moment, and in in, so I'll 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 I'll, uh, I'll take this moment. It's the uh, it's the fall, <coughs> excuse me, of 1871, and the. Uh, uh, the Comanche Wars have just been going on forever. They've been going on since the 1830s, and and nobody can do anything about them. I mean, there's there's this, the frontier keeps rolling kind of backwards and forwards, but there's there, the Civil War has taken m- much of the federal authority out of the uh, the region, and so they're doing the Civil War, the 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 frontier, and and you might want to think about Fort Worth as the frontier, or you know, draw a line between Fort Worth and San Antonio, mm-hmm. roughly, kind of. Rolling backwards, rolling forwards. When it when it rolled backwards, whole counties would empty out. Comanche raids, and so you have this moment where where the Civil War is over, and the guys who were running America are the grim warriors who destroyed the South, who unleashed more firepower than had ever been seen in the history of the universe. Uh, you know, these are the Union guys. So the president is Ulysses S. Grant. The head of the armies is William Tecumseh Sherman, and the head of armies in the West is Philip Sheridan. These are the boys. These are the people who, and you look at the casualties, the battles that, of the Civil War. I'm mean, just, uh, I'm doing some research now in the Wilderness Campaign of 85,000 in a couple of weeks. I mean, that kind of casualties. And now here we have a tribe with 25,000 people, maybe 6,000 warriors left at this point. We're in the 1870s now, holding up the entire advance of American civilization as people saw it, right? So, Grant besides Grant, Sherman, Sheridan, decide enough of this, we're going to stop this, and we're going to stop this forever. And, and this movement is going to culminate in the Red River War, which takes place in West Texas in the Panhandle. But the first move is they take Grant's favorite officer, young officer from the Civil War, Ronald Slidell McKenzie, from a very prominent uh, uh, Southern family, and uh, he's going to send McKenzie to a place just a little bit east of Lubbock called Blanco Canyon, where this young chief named Quana uh, is, is with, with, uh, based uh, with some warriors and, and, and lodges. He's sort, of a, he's sort of one of those young war chiefs, of which there were many in the Comanche. So what they do, so there's this great moment in the fall of 1871 where Grant dispatches Mackenzie. Uh, you know, he 
staging out of Fort Concho and Fort Richardson. He moves west with 600 mounted bluecoats. It's great, and 20 Tonkawa scouts, and they're going now to get and eradicate these Comanches. And uh, it leads to the Battle of Blanco Canyon, one of the great, or just absolutely amazing battles in the sense that Quanah just schools Mackenzie up and down on the rules of plains warfare, including taking his entire village up and down the Caprock like three times to get away from the hmm. Union soldiers. And during this, this battle, you know, as I say, um, Quanah wins in the sense that he gets away. Uh, he takes a... It's one of the two times when a you know, commander goes into battle with, the, with a village, actually, of old men and horses you know, and, and wins. <laughs> but during this, he schools Mackenzie. It's the first of Mackenzie's schooling in how to fight out there. And um, Mackenzie will later use all of the things that Quanah taught him in the Red River War, which we see in 1874 and 1875, which will be the end of all of the, you know, the, the end of the frontier, the end of the, the, the the Southern Indians, now Arapaho, Cheyenne, Comanche, everybody is going to be the end. But it kind of begins with this oddball victory 20 miles east of, uh, of Lubbock in 1871. And, and so Mackenzie, it's interesting, Mackenzie gets the schooling right. He comes back. He is the sort of point guy in the Red River War, which is this, the, literally the last, the last gasp here. It's the last of the Indian power at the end of which Quanah brings the last of the starving Comanches in to Fort Sill. And who's the commandant at Fort Sill? Reynold Slidell McKenzie. And the first thing Quanah does is he, you know, Quanah, the great legendary Comanche chief, right, he walks into uh, to, uh, McKenzie's office in Fort Sill, uh, Lawton, Oklahoma, and he says, you know, my name's Quanah, and by the way, my mother is Cynthia Ann Parker, and I'd like to find her. And, you know... <laughs> Cynthia and Parker being the most famous mm-hmm. captive on the frontier, and nobody had any idea that this guy had some relation to her. So Mackenzie's jaw hits the floor. He picks it up, and then he proceeds to help Quanah find, try to find his long-lost mother. And it's a very interesting, I can go on, it's a very interesting story. Mackenzie um, has something happen to him, and it's not clear exactly what. It may have been a hit on the head, uh, but he goes pretty pretty quickly insane pretty quickly after that. Oh, I'm sorry, before that happens, he's the one who gets sent north to clean up Custer's mess. Hmm. Um, and uh, and he does clean up Custer's mess. And when he comes back, he, uh, he has this incident, whatever it is, and he kind of, uh, he, he's so crazy, and it happens so quickly, that they literally, they take him to a train under false pretext and put him on the train, and they put him on the train this is the army doing this for the east and he ends up in an insane asylum for a while and i think living with his sister but uh uh he he uh he he goes down very very quickly at a very very young age so it's a very Hmm. um it was an interesting uh, he's interesting in a lot of ways one one way that he's interesting is the same way that quana is that both men come to power if you will on the plains of texas or in, in the western part of texas as very young men, right at the end of everything, if, at the end of the, the Indian Wars. And they both, this, this great kind of explosion of, uh, of violence that they're in the middle of, and then it's gone, and then Quan is on the reservation, and Mackenzie's, you know, crazy as a box of cricket li- li- crickets living in New York. Hmm. Well, let's take that for just a second. Uh, we'll to go back. 
Uh, Sam Gwynn, author of Empire of the Summer Moon, join us here a couple more minutes. You talk about the mental frontier and the living memory. I want to quote, there's this great artist that I just came across. He's just an upstart. His name is David Blake Terrell. He wrote a song that I'm absolutely fascinated about. It's called Prairie Town. It's, it, folks can go out there and find it. But I want to read to you this verse, and I want to ask you how that living memory you think impacts people's thinking on the Yano even today. This is the verse. When they came out here on the wagons, were they doomed before they arrived? Is it just the grassland or Cynthia Ann that cursed those who occupied? But you trade those cold blue northerns to see the deer and the antelope play, to see the morning clear through your horse's ears. You thank God for life on the range. Is this something that still impacts people philosophically, morally, politically, in every way in this part of the country? I, I, I think so. I mean, there's, there's a... I do. I, I've talked many times about how I think that current-day Texas reflects uh, what happened to it, because what happened to it was completely not what happened to any other state. And uh, it is it is true, as I said, you know, where, where you are out there is, uh, I mean, you're, you, you guys literally live on the edge of the last frontier. It's the last place settled. So, I mean, it, it, there is, I think, a feeling of, uh, and I get that feeling. It's one of the reasons I love it out there. Is I, j- I just get this feeling that I really am on. There is no frontier anymore, but I'm uh, the closest thing that, I, that there is to it. But politically speaking, um, you know, it's sort of Texas is famous. Let's just we'll take one political idea. Um, Texas is famous for you know not be, shall we say not being a, a national leader in social services provided. Let's just say. So when George Bush was running for president, people made a lot out of this, right? So we were 49th in this and 48th in this, and all these kind of measures that, say, Massachusetts and New Jersey would regard as important. And so my friends from Massachusetts and New Jersey would call and ask me about this, and I'd say, you know, you you may want Texas to be like New Jersey, but I said, it's not going to be like New Jersey. And one of the reasons is, is because we fought a war... 40-year war. If you go back to the beginnings of this war, actually just before the beginning of the Comanche War, what you have is this little republic. It's its own country now, right? In 1836, it's its own country. It's facing two enemies that neither one will accept surrender. Comanches don't have a word for it. And of course, Santa Ana flew mm-hmm. the flag of no quarter at the Alamo, right? So Mexicans, neither, neither side is accepting surrender. You have a, a, a little republic that has no money and is facing these two implacable enemies and is getting no help from anybody. Not only that, but the way Texas was settled, as, as, a, as you know, and if you look at, let's say, Canada and Mexico, where the government would always come in first, you know, with the Presidio and the soldiers and the church and the institutions, and then, very timidly, the, the pioneers would follow. Out here in Texas, you had these crazy Scots-Irish people from Tennessee and Alabama pushing, like the Parkers, way out past any institution. So these Texans were used to, there just weren't institutions. They didn't look to institutions. They didn't look to the government. There was no government for the first 10 years of their existence. And then they had to fight this 40-year war. And it conditioned who Texans are. And, uh, you know, we're getting a big influx of, you know, people like me, also Californians and everything else, but there's things in the Texas spirit that persist, and I think self-sufficiency is one of them. 
I can go on about it, but there there is a feeling that I uh, that this, the the whole premise of the settlement here was diametrically opposed to let's say Massachusetts or yeah. Connecticut. Well, my name in the end, completely different. And so I I see it that way. I say, you know, I used to sit around with Paul Burka, the politics writer at Texas Monthly, and we would agree that you know the reason Texas is so different, <laughs> I think, in a positive way, but is uh, is this long war? Nobody else had to fight a war. And like then that. you had a war against the worst hard time right after that, right? I mean, you had the Depression and then, had and then the Dust Bowl. And, yeah. and the, so you're talking about, it, 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 that's the, I don't know, it, 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 I think these are formative experiences uh, that, that people have. And, hmm. and, it, it, and the interesting thing is that, that, it, that they persist. I think they persist in spite of, you know, Texas is obviously this boom state. Everything's expanding like crazy, and uh, you know, and I don't know. Like, it seems like Texas Tech is three times bigger than it used to be. Everything's bigger and bigger, <laughs> but but uh, you know, I, but these these things persist. These wow. feelings, these ideas, this that, uh, and this kind of frontier mentality. And you know, I, I think Mike Leach is a classic example of of the Texas frontier mentality. When he what he was running out there in the two, when he came to Tech was frontier football. It was pioneer football. It was just not what anybody else was even thinking of doing anyway. One of the reasons I was so interested in, one of the reasons I wanted to write about him. Yeah. Well, come on. Promise us you'll come on again and talk about Mike Leach and talk about the perfect pass. So let's do that sometime. Whenever you'd like to, we'll just talk about Mike Leach and uh, and how he changed the entire sport of American football. We, he and Hal did, but uh, yeah. uh, I'd be happy to, love to. Great, Sam Gwynn. Again, the book is Empire of Summer Moon: The Perfect Pass. Rebel Yell. I highly recommend Empire of Summer Moon. Thanks for taking time with us, Sam. Okay, Jay. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Yeah. A real pleasure. Hey, before I get you out on this break, come back in with a blue collar bill. There's one bank in Lubbock that's withstood the worst hard times and everything in between. Uh, that is American Bank of Commerce. That's been on a bank corner in Lubbock. There may be a church on every corner in most communities, but in Lubbock, there's also a bank on every corner. And they've been standing there by the same name for as long as I can remember. I've got friends who went to started ABC Bank in college, still work there. It's the kind of culture they have. So whenever I started to look at launching other side of Texas, you know what I did? I went to ABC Bank, that's for sure. Uh, service, quality customer service and loyalty since 1962. Do what we did for your banking needs. Check them out at theabcbank.com. That's theabcbank.com, 1-888-902-2552. Stick with us. We'll have a little blue-collar bill report. All those bombings through the mail. You know who deals with mail? Blue-collar bill. He's got a couple of things to say about that. As we close out this edition of Other Side of Texas, we'll be right back with you. Oh, spread out wide. Grab your partner, go hog wide. 